We are today continuing our study of the book of 1 Samuel, so I'd ask that you would turn to 1 Samuel chapter 4. This is a a time in Israel's history uh, when they're transitioning from the period of the judges, and now it's setting the stage for King David and his reign, and actually King Saul prior to him. But this is the period of time. uh, There's a lot of tension going on, and we're going to meet one of these warring people groups called the Philistines here in chapters 4 through 6. The Philistines are known as the Sea Peoples, or uh, of this group of people called the Sea Peoples. They, at this time in history, dominated an area of five cities along the uh, western coast of of, uh, the land of Palestine. And those five cities, the Pentopolis, there was a Philistine lord over each one of these cities. They were a powerful people from a different region. We're not exactly sure. It could have been the island of Crete. Some people think it could have been further up into Europe. They were beer drinkers. Could have been some of my uh, ancestors back in there, some Germans coming down. But whatever skills and warfare that they brought into this ancient Near Eastern world, they had tactics and techniques and weaponry that was superior to that of many of the peoples that had interacted with the nation of Israel. So as these beer-drinking sea people came in, they caused a lot of problems for God's people. And we're going to see today one of these battles that goes in the wrong direction. Uh, So far in the first few chapters of Samuel, we've met a few key characters here. We've met the priest Eli. We've met his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who have not been faithful to God. They've been disdaining God's sacrifices, eating that meat that was to be offered as a sacrifice, taking that to feed their own appetites. They've also been uh, having appetites towards the young ladies in the temple, and God is very displeased with all of this. In contrast to Eli and his household, we've also met the young boy Samuel, who's hearing God's voice, and he's devoted himself to God, and now his word of the Lord is going out to all of Israel. So these are some of the players as we go to chapter 4. And look at aspects of God's power and glory. And it's awesome that we've been able to come together into God's house. I pray that as you've come to worship today, you've been able to set aside some of those concerns in your life, some of the agendas that you have for the week going forward, and just to fix your eyes on the King today, to get a glimpse of His power, of His glory. And maybe that's not the case. Maybe you're still stuck in that place of the concerns, the pressures, the weights, the goals, the priorities then today as we go to God's word, just let that go and let's hear from him today. Let's have a fresh recognition of who he is, the glorious king of kings, the creator of all things. And we're going to meet him today in his word. So let's read here in in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. The word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies." So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. A lot going on just in these first opening verses of this story. We're hearing 
some, some hope in the people's heart that God will be the one that fights the battles for them. And yet there's a, a, a subtle phrasing in here where there's almost a connection between the ark itself and the ability to be victorious in battle. It's almost as if they're looking to God's uh, as a to God as a relic, as an amulet, as a, a magic rabbit's foot that will get them what they want. And so they're back in the camp now. It's not a battle now that that God has led them into. The battle is over. They've lost the battle. Four thousand of them were killed that day. They're back in the camp, and now they have come up with a plan. And to uh, baptize their plan, they want to bring God's ark and kind of set it right in the middle of their plan so that they'll have success in their plan. We're going to see how that works out for them. The caution that is beginning to build here is that we are not to bring our plans to God and have him baptize them, anoint them, empower our plans. Instead, we're to get on board with God's plan. We're not to go into battle on our own and then drag God along with us into battle. Instead, we're to wait until God leads us into battle and only fight the battles that he has led us into because those battles are fought with his power. And the question that's beginning to emerge for us as God's people today is are we focused on God's purposes or or on our own agendas? It's very easy to look at the circumstances around us, the situations, and to say, hey, somebody needs to do something. Let's take matters into our own hands. Let's make something happen. And oh yeah, by the way, let's just tack a prayer onto the end of it to make sure God is in this with us. And that's really what God's people are doing. Even overlooking the fact that the priesthood is polluted and corrupt, and the two young men, the sons of Eli, that accompany that ark of God's presence Hophni and Phinehas, we've just met them and all the disdainful practices in chapters 2 and 3. They're the ones now coming and bringing this ark into battle. So how do you know what God's plans are? If we're to operate in God's plans and God's purposes instead of our own plans and purposes, how do we do that? Well, we got a glimpse of that back in chapter 2 as God was delivering a warning to Eli, a, a pronouncement of judgment upon Eli and his household. There's a preview of something to come. And God says this in 2.35, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. Let's read that again. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. That's the path to victory, is when we follow after God's faithful priest who does what is according to his heart and according to his mind. Do you know a faithful priest like that? That priest's name is Jesus. And as he came, he submitted himself to the will of his Father. It's in following Jesus that we know the plans and purposes of God. It's in following Jesus that we know what is in the heart and in the mind of God. It's in following Jesus that we assure that we're not just going off on our own path and trying to bring God into our plans, but instead the exact reverse where we're saying, God, I submit my plans to you. God, I submit my desires to you. God, make a way. God, direct my steps. God, through your son Jesus, show me the path I should go and enable me to walk in it. The, the Israelites are not looking to God's word. They're not looking to God's heart, to his plan. Instead, they're saying, let's just bring this artifact of God's presence into our midst and it will guarantee our victory. 
Ironically, we see more respect and reverence for God's glory and power from their enemies, the Philistines, than we do from God's own people. Let's read on here in verse 5. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. And like the direct speech recorded of Eli in the preceding chapters, we see a mixture of theological truth and some error interwoven into the Philistines' declaration here in chapter 4. They're getting it right. Yeah, God is here. He is a powerful God. He fights the battles for his people. The reference to Egypt reminds the reader of 1 Samuel and us today that God has been victorious in the past. He has delivered his people. He's led them from captivity, from slavery, from bondage into freedom to the land of promise. God fights the battles for his people. We're hearing from the Philistines' own lips some theological truths. They're a little confused. They're, They're speaking of gods in the plural. And yet, there is some real truth to what the Philistines are saying. They have a reverence for God. They have a recognition of the power of God in a way that really the Israelites have not yet demonstrated. And yet, they, they dig down deep, they draw those swords out, and they fight a valiant fight. And we find out what happens here in verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel... 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. The message here is do not fight a battle where God is not leading. In chapter 4, verse 2, we saw earlier on here that uh, the first battle, there were 4,000 Israelites killed. Then the Israelites come up with this plan. While in the camp, not in the midst of battle, the battle day is over. Philistines are back in their camp. Israelites in their, in, in their own camp. They've had a, a crushing defeat that day, 4,000 losses. Now they come up with a plan, and they say, well, oh yeah, let's, let's bring God into our plan. And the result of that plan is now in verse 10, 30,000 fatalities. Far, far worse than the beginning of the day. They lost 4,000 in verse 2. Now with their plan, they've lost another 30,000. Your power does not accomplish God's purposes. Neither does God's power accomplish your purposes. The truth is that God's power accomplishes God's purposes. So we may be tempted to go one way or the other, right? So we might say, well, you know, God, I don't really know what your purposes are, so I'm going to come up with a plan I'd like your power to be in my plan. Or we might go the other way and say, well, God, I I think I've read your word enough to get a glimpse of what your purposes are. You've revealed yourself to me. You've revealed your plans, your ways. 
Now I'm going to accomplish your plans in my power. That doesn't work either. And so for the Israelites, they're learning a very hard lesson today. God has purposes. He has plans. You better know what those plans are and then get on board with those plans. And when you do that, His power comes in. He accomplishes His purposes. His purposes are to bring glory to Himself. And He uses people like you and I operating in His strength to carry out His plans and His purposes. Proverbs 19.21 puts it like this, Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purposes that prevail. That'd be a great one to memorize this week. Write that on your post-it note. Stick it on on your uh, mirror in your bathroom. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purposes that prevail. Proverbs 19.21. And every time you pray that as a prayer, say, God, man, I've got a lot of ideas, God. But I submit those ideas, those plans to you. I ask that your purposes would be what are carried out in my life, that I wouldn't choose the battles that I fight, try to tack some, some of God's power onto that, but instead, submitting ourselves to him, listening to him, being led by him, so that when there is a battle and he's saying, get involved, roll up your sleeves, pull out your sword, it's battle time, then we're fighting in his strength toward his purposes, not just wearing ourselves out and ending up defeated at the end of the day. The rest of chapter 4 is really the conclusion of Eli's story. We touched on this a bit last week as we looked at Eli and his family. Eli now hears the word uh, back from the battle scene that his sons have both been killed. And for him, even more disturbing, that the ark of God has been captured, taken away by the Philistines. This ark that really represents the, the dwelling place of God's power, his glory, his holiness, now removed taken off toward the sea by these marauders from a different region who now have captured the ark of God and his glory and his power. And Eli is so disturbed, he falls backward off of his bench, breaks his neck, and he dies. And that's the sad end of Eli's story. Eli and his sons disregarded God's power and his glory and his holiness. We saw that in the way that they treated the sacrifice. As people came to obediently follow God's purposes, God's ways, God said, bring the meat with the fat on it and offer it as a sacrifice to me. Here's the portions that the priests can use for their own sustenance. Here's the portions that are consecrated to God. And Eli and his sons disregarded God's power and his glory and his holiness. And they went after that nice choice prime rib, that good steak with some fat marbled in it. And they said, no, 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 don't boil that. We'll take that with the fat still on it. We'd like to have a barbecue. Really demonstrating a desire to feed their own appetites rather than to set their affections on God. And now their story comes to a sad end. But really that same heart permeated the entire nation of Israel. And they looked to fight their own battles, but bringing God in as like a good luck charm. And as we face the challenges, the struggles of day-to-day life at work, at home, at school, whatever situation God has you in with your family, it's important to stop and ask that question. Is this God's fight? Or is this my fight? If we're fighting our own battles with our own agendas and our own purposes, all we're going to do is get worn out, defeated, beat down. 
And even just tacking a prayer onto whatever initiative we have launched in our own strength is going to end in futility. But it's when we come back to that question and say, God, what are your plans? What are your purposes? Lead me, God, in this situation today, in this decision, in this relationship. And then as he leads and guides, he also brings the power that we need and assures the victory. Does it mean there will not be times of defeat along the way? No. I think, I think at the beginning of the story here, there was a day of defeat that ended up rippling out and causing more defeat as they now turn to God only in that time of defeat instead of having their hearts fully fixed on him. So it's not that this path with Jesus is a straight line uphill from glory to glory and joy to joy and there's no hardship or difficulties. It's just that those light and momentary trials are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we do not fix our eyes on what is seen, but on what is unseen, because what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. We keep our eyes focused on those purposes of God, those eternal purposes of God, and that's what enables us to walk through day by day in the trials and struggles that inevitably come in this life. So now the ark has been transported to the nation of, Phil- of the Philistines, to, th- to the region that they occupy, these five cities along the coast. And we see now a demonstration of God's power once again. He's not a silent God. He's not a dead God. The Philistines were not wrong in their fear at the end of chapter 4. He is a powerful God, and there is no God like our God. Let's read here now in, in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon, their God, and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back up in his place. Maybe it was just a coincidence. Maybe our God just happened to tip over last night. Let's stand him back up. It should be fine. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off in the threshold. Probably not a coincidence. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. There's a healthy respect among the Philistines for the power of the one true living God and their own God that they've worshipped and revered falls down and his head falls off in the presence of our God. There is no God like our God. Discussions of religious tolerance, religious pluralism, spiritual diversity, those conversations are all fine until you include the maker of heaven and earth into the mix. When you bring the creator of all things in, he's in a, an entirely different category from any of the other religions, any of the other gods, the deities that are served. He's in the category of creator. Everything else is in the category of created. And it's okay to have religious pluralism, 
spiritual diversity in all these other areas, all the pagan gods like they did in Athens, you know, statues to all the gods that they worship. Sure, have a plurality of spiritualism there. But not when you bring our God into the mix. Not when you bring the creator of all things, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the God above all gods. He is wholly other. Everything else is merely created and all things bow before him. And that's the message that the Philistines are learning. Now as they're bringing this relic from the, that nation over there, Israel, into their own cities, their own region, they're starting to find out this is a powerful God. He's not like our God. He's the living God. He's not just a statue in a room. There's something going on here. And that lesson is driven home even more now as they begin to move the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord's presence from city to city in this region of the Philistines. Verse 6, The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath, another one of their cities. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. Just get, get it out of our region. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out. They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. From Ashdod to Gath to Ekron, God's power and glory are on display to the Philistines. Sometimes God's power and glory are displayed in this way. With judgment, with wrath, with an outpouring of his power. And that's a picture of his holiness and his glory. And sometimes his power and his majesty and his glory and his supremacy is demonstrated in other ways with his long-suffering love, with his steadfast love, with his mercy, with his grace. And no matter what attribute he chooses to demonstrate, he is a glorious God. He is a holy God. He is far above any other God. There's no one like him. Philistines are beginning to get this message loud and clear. We see here in chapter 5 this ancient Near Eastern belief, popular among all these nations at this time in history, that a god was a regional god. You know, the, the god of the Babylonians, he's over there in Babylonia. The god of the Assyrians, he's up there in Assyria. The god of the Israelites, he's there in the land that the Israelites occupy and dwell in. 
And so we're having problems here in this Philistine region because this is the region of the Philistine god, Dagon, and we've brought this other god from the neighboring region over here. Let's send him back to where he belongs. So this was the idea that there is a region that each god reigns over. I don't think they were that far off. I actually think this ancient Near Eastern belief is pretty accurate. But let me ask you a question. What region is our God the God over? Everything. Thank you, Bob. Exactly right. He's the God of heaven and earth. Heaven meaning everything not of the earth. He's the God of everywhere. So yes, he's the God of that one region that occupies all of space and time and matter. That's the God that he is. And he's the God of the region that your little fake Dagon God that you think he's the God over. He's the God in the Babylonian region. He's the God in Centennial. He's the God in Aurora. He's the God down in Colorado Springs. He's even the God in Boulder. (laughs) He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is no God like him. If you're from Boulder, we're glad you're here today. Welcome. And God's power has now been on display throughout the region of the Philistines. And they're saying, we don't want to mess with this God. So their plan now is, is we'll summarize chapter 6, but they come up with a plan that these five Philistine lords, the lords of each of these five Philistine cities, they get together and they say, well, yeah, let's get this out of our region. Let's get this Ark of the Covenant of the God of Israel out of here. Let's send them back to Israel. We can't send back this altar, this, uh, this Ark of the God of Israel, without offering a guilt offering. What shall we send as a guilt offering? They come up with a plan. Let's make five golden tumors. I'm sure those were beautiful. And five golden mice to represent this outpouring of plagues that we've had here in the region of the Philistine cities. And then let's give glory to the God of Israel is their plan. With, the, with this guilt offering of five golden mice and five golden tumors, one for each of the five Philistine cities, one for each of these five Philistine lords. Again, there's some theological truth here in what the desire of the Philistines is. Let's give glory to the God of Israel. Let's give a guilt offering to him. Perhaps he will relent. Perhaps our sins against him will be atoned for. Maybe you've had this feeling where you know that you have offended the holiness of the maker of heaven and earth. You've stood opposed to his glory. And if that's the case, you join with every other human that has ever lived. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so if you feel like the Philistines do and that you need to make a guilt offering to atone for your sins... There is some theological truth to that belief. The problem is just like the Philistines' sacrifice was an imperfect sacrifice, although they had maybe the best artisans sculpting those tumors so they look very realistic. The finest gold to make those little golden mice, and yet that offering was not sufficient to atone for their sins. And we do the same thing, right? We recognize that we have offended the holiness and the glory of the one true God. And we try to make something really nice as a guilt offering to him. Well, look at the good things I did, God. Look at how hard I worked. Does that offset my sin? Does that 
Is that sufficient to remove the guilt of my sin stain? The good news is that God himself has provided that sacrifice that is required because we can't fashion anything that will impress him, that will deal with our own sin issue, but God can. And because God so loved the world, he gave his only son, the pure, spotless lamb of God. And as he comes on the scene, we can do nothing but bow bow down to him and say, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth and the sins of you and I as well. It's Jesus that is that guilt offering. He's the perfect sacrifice once and for all. And so as you look at that sin, as ugly as it is, and you give it to him, just thank Jesus for that price that he paid for your sin. Thank him that he is the one that enables you to be cleansed from your sin and to walk faithfully with God. He pays the price. So these Philistines, they're now trying to atone for their own sins. They fashion these objects, place them next to the ark of God, and they come up with an elaborate plan because, once again, they just want to make sure this is actually the judgment of the one true God against them and not just a coincidence. Their own words here in chapter 6. And so they come up with a plan. They, take a, they make a new cart. They take two cows who have calves. They say, lock the calves up in the barn. Two cows that have never been hooked up to a yoke. Let's hook them up to a yoke, to this new cart, and take their baby calves away from them, put them back in the barn, stick the Ark of God in there, our little box of artifacts from the Philistine region, and let's see what happens. If these cows just come back to the barn, we'll know that this was all just a coincidence. And let's just watch. And these cows go in a straight path toward the nation of Israel. And it says they're lowing all the way. These cows are mooing, going down the path, just heading straight back with the ark of God, ignoring their calves back in the barn and just marching straight toward God. And the Philistines get the message loud and clear. This is the God of Israel. This is the God of heaven and earth. They're seeing the glory and the power of God demonstrated through this simple test. There are no coincidences. That's a superstitious belief. You know that there's things like luck, things like fate, things like coincidences. And it, it, it creeps into our vocabulary, right? Hey, good luck. Our Christmas carols, if the fates allow. Right? And so this becomes part of our belief system. What we say, what we joke about, what we sing about, it, it begins to shape our thinking. But ideas like coincidence, luck, good fortune, fate, that stands in opposition to the truth that there is a sovereign God who rules over all things, who directs all things for his glory and his purposes who sets out missions for his people and he orchestrates things in our lives. He's never only doing one thing at a time. Sometimes we're a part of something we have no idea what part we're playing, right? And so to us, it may seem like a coincidence at time. We may never connect the dots until someday in eternity when he say, hey, you remember that one day when you were really confused why that bad thing was happening, why that 
uh, unpleasant event happen in your life, let me give you, let me roll back the picture and show you. Zoom out a little bit, you know, don't just focus on that one little cross stitch pattern, but let's zoom out so you can see the picture of what I was doing there. There are no coincidences. Our God is working for his glory. He is accomplishing his purposes in all things. And like that, the end of that chapter in 1 Corinthians 13 about love says this, we see but a dim reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now we know in part. Then we shall know fully even as we are now fully known. There is a sovereign God He sees what's going on in your world today, in your life right now. He's not unaware of your suffering. We have a a daughter at home suffering today with a bad case of the chicken pox. And so I I was uh, giving Ivy this sermon last night as she's suffering and just needing to know that uh, suffering... The Bible calls it light and momentary, even when your whole body is aching, when you got a fever, when you're itching, when you look in the mirror and you're kind of terrifying to look at. If you're having a day like that and you're feeling, she said, she thought about Job. Um, but there, there is this, this worldly existence and those, those uh, sufferings of this life, those things that are seen, are achieving something within us, some depth of character, some measure of endurance, some growth in faith, some lifting our eyes from this present suffering to that eternity where he will wipe every tear from our eye. And maybe even a dissatisfaction with the things of this earth to draw our attention to him. There is no God like our God. Trust him to fight your battles. Trust him to be the one that leads you into the battles that you should engage in. And the question really as we look at this story is, are you operating in your strength or God's strength? Your strength will not last real long. But if you're accomplishing God's purposes, his greater glory, he's going to give you the strength you need to endure day by day the challenges that you face along that path. And so that ark does return to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And it stops there in Israel. There's rejoicing in Israel. The lords of the Philistines are hanging back right on the border. They're watching. They go back to report, yep, that was God. And there's one very disturbing paragraph right at the end of chapter 6 that I think we need to read together. So now the ark has returned to the nation of Israel. In verse 19, what happens there in Beth Shemesh? And God struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark, the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. Your, your, your translation may say 50,000 men. The Hebrew has both numbers kind of written next to each other there. So we don't know how to translate that. Is it he struck 70 of the 50,000? Did he strike 70 and 50,000? Not sure. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? 
So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son, Eleazar, to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Look at that phrase in verse 20 again. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? I think we're finally seeing that reverential fear of the holy God that we serve. Not the kind of fear that we're used to talking about, like a scary movie kind of fear, but the reverential fear that just says, you are awesome. You are holy other. There is no God like you. My plans, my purposes, never mind. Show me your glory. Show me your plans. And the people of Israel are finally getting that. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Why, why the fatalities there in Beth Shemesh? Why God's judgment? Well, there was a command given to God's people in Numbers chapter 4. I'll just read a little bit to give us a context and understanding here. As God was speaking to Moses and Aaron, uh, the father of Levi and the, and the, the tribe of Levi, the Levites who would be the priests in God's temple, there are some instructions given by God. In Numbers 4, he says, Let not the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites, but deal thus with them that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy things. Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint them each to his task and to his burden. Now here's the key verse, Numbers 4.20. But they shall not go in to look on the holy things even for a moment lest they die. There were some clear instructions there to the priests, to God's people, regarding these items of worship. And as Solomon's temple was built, there was a place in the temple called the Holy of Holies. It was such a holy place, it was where the Ark of the Covenant was placed that we've just been reading about. But that Holy of Holies could only be entered by a human once a year. And only one human, only the high priest, and only on one particular day, the Day of Atonement. And there was a veil, a, temp, a, a, a curtain there that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, the most holy place. In fact, there, the tradition is that the fringe of the high priest's robe had bells on it, and there was a rope on his ankle. Just in case when he entered the most holy place on the Day of Atonement, to make atonement for the sins of the people, maybe he had done something not quite to the Lord's requirements. And if so, when he entered that, he would die instantly. And there'd have to be a way to remove the body. If the bell stopped ringing, pull the rope. This was the, the tradition that we've learned about from some Jewish history. This is a holy God. And yet the people of Beth Shemesh, they 
looked inside the ark. They looked upon the ark. And so God, in his holiness, brought judgment upon them. Now, weigh all that with the one little verse in Luke's gospel and in the other gospel accounts, what happened on the day of Jesus' crucifixion. Okay, among other things, dead people coming up out of the graves, thunder clouds rolling in in the middle of the day, darkness. The dramatic thing that happens is that that veil, that curtain that separates everybody else from God's holy presence was ripped from top to bottom. The veil in the temple was torn. What does that mean? It means that we don't need to fear God in a way that is afraid. We still are to come to him with that awe that the people of Beth Shemesh had. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? To have that reverence and fear of his holiness, to be awestruck by him. And yet there's some words of hope that we have from Hebrews chapter 4. I'll close with this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As we move from the God of the Old Testament and his interaction with his people there to the same God in the New Testament now interacting with humans in a whole new way through his son Jesus, we must not let go of that reverential fear that we saw here in Beth Shemesh. We still cry out, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And yet we also with joy read Hebrews 4 together. And we say, let us enter boldly to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's both aspects of God's character in his heart. Whatever the situation is that is pressing on you right now, maybe it's a, a bad case of the chicken pox and your whole body is aching. Maybe it's trials at home or at work in a relationship. Maybe it's a misunderstanding. Maybe it's a false accusation. Maybe it's depression, anxiety, and addiction. What's the battle that you are finding yourself in right now? And my prayer for you today as we close is going to be that you can hold both of those together, that you can hold a healthy reverence for the holiness of God and say, God, who is able to stand before you? You are a holy God. And yet also that joy that comes with saying, it's time to enter boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy, to receive grace, to help in your time of need. So can we pray together as we go to our holy God today? Why don't we stand? Lord, we thank you and we praise you. Thank you that you are still at work fighting the battles for your people. God, you know our propensity to just take matters into our own hands 
Forgive us for the times that we have set our own plans and our own agendas and then tried to tack you on to whatever we are already doing. God, today we repent of that practice. Instead, we come to you with humility. We say, God, we don't even know where to go or what to do. We don't know if we should go or stay, but we entrust ourselves to you. We pray that you would make clear to us the plans that you have for our lives, for our families, for our church. And then, God, we choose to get on board with your kingdom mission and the role that you've called us to play. Lord, thank you that you're the one fighting the battles for us, that it's the strength of the Lord, not our own strength. God, today we do, like the people of Beth Shemesh, we cry out with reverence, with awe, with wonder. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? God, today we, in a fresh way, in a new way, we recognize you for the glorious King that you are. There is no God besides you. You alone are worthy of praise and glory. You are the supreme creator of all things, maker of heaven and earth. We thank you, God, that despite your holy otherness, you came down. You are God with us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've made a way for our sins to be atoned for, for that guilt offering to be paid once and for all. Thank you, Lord, that your sacrifice is sufficient. Thank you, Lord, that because of you, our great high priest, We are now able to draw near the throne of grace. We're now able to receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. God, you see our needs today. You see each heart, each mind. Lord, today we thank you that we can cast our cares upon you. We ask God that now as we go forth from this place, we would walk in the freedom and the power that you offer that we'd fight the battles that you lead us into, that we would operate in your strength, Lord God. Thank you that you're accomplishing your purposes using your power and that you choose to use even people like us. Equip us now for the work that you're calling us to this week, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.